Welcome to Yolitics, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics. Hey everybody, brand new week here on uh, Yolitics. Jason and Jason with you once again. Uh, Whiteley, Don't sound too excited there, Wheeler. Don't sound too excited. Did that now. sound t- too mellow? You're like... Hey everybody! It's a brand new Sometimes. week. Sometimes remember on uh, Good Morning Vietnam, <laughs> the, the the second guy who was really like uh, Armed Forces Radio. Uh, does, you know? uh, so does that yes. mean you're going to be the Robin Williams character? Who uh, someone's got to be it, it dude. Sometimes you got to be a little more mellow. You know, it's it's still kind of the beginnings of a week. Uh, what are, what are you drinking? Not enough, my friend. Not enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm having a a Friday IPA. Unfortunately, it is not Friday as we prepare this. This is from the uh, uh, Martin House Brewing Company in Fort Worth. It's an IPA. It's a strong stuff coming out of the gate hard. Okay. Um, and I've uh, I haven't had this yet. Uh, you you're for? doing an IPA, so I'm going to do an IPA today as well. <gasps> you know this never works out, right? I'm still in search of an IPA that I actually enjoy. Um, this is good, so man. So today we're going to give Shiner a chance. It's the Brujas Brew IPA Shiner Tex Hex. I didn't know Shiner did a, an IPA. It sounded just, you know, wicked and wild enough that I thought, well, I'll give them a try too. It's it's never my thing, but we'll see, you know. Yeah, you like the fruity beers, man. Well, this one is an India Pale Ale brewed with cactus water, so, you know. Of course. Of course. And that's not... Are you gluten-free, Wheeler? Am I what? Are you gluten-free? I am not. Really? Why do you seem surprised by that? You just like, you know, fruity beers and, and like, vegetable beers and... Stuff you know, like we that. all have to get our servings of vegetables somehow, Jason. Uh, <laughs> fruits and vegetables, first thing, uh, with a podcast. That's why I'm so mellow. Um, so, oh my gosh. this is an interesting. We, we've got a good topic today, and this this whole this whole uh, intro is just bombed, man. But let, let's get to the good stuff. I, I I agree fully. We should have just rolled it hot. Uh, so this is <laughs> you know we've probably you know everybody's probably already heard by now uh, this back and forth that was uh, happening recently, uh, where it's it's almost like the the war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is kind of spilling over now. Uh, into a place that it has, you know, we've we've traditionally not seen these kinds of conflicts go, Jason. Yeah, it's it's like back to the 1960s. So the the latest thing, if you haven't followed what Russia is doing now, it's you know it's complaining so much about the um, uh, the sanctions that the West is putting on them. Russia now says, hey, you know what? We're getting out of the space station. The space station, 250 miles above our heads at all times. We're done with it. What's interesting about this, um, if you guys haven't paid much attention to it, is the United States and uh, Russia got together on this years ago to create the space station. They since brought in the European Space Agency, ESA, ESA, and brought in Japan and Canada as well, too. And everyone has their own modules up there. It's like a bunch of mobile homes connected with some solar arrays out there that create the electricity. Russia is a massive player in this. And for a long time, ever since we retired the space shuttle in 2011, we've been paying for seats on the Soyuz space capsule to physically get our astronauts up there. Now Russia says, you know what? Because you're putting these sanctions on us for our invasion of Ukraine, we're, we're done 
with the space station. So, we're, you know, maybe we're going to take our module and just go home uh, is what they're kind of threatening there. <laughs> uh, but it, it hasn't really happened yet. Is it a veiled threat? Is it just, you know, a, a bunch of talk? Uh, who knows? But, you know, NASA has to plan for these things just in case. And so we thought, you know what, let's get this guy on the phone. Uh, his, his name is uh, Chris Cassidy. He is a retired astronaut. He was the chief astronaut there at NASA for a while. And, um, you know, Jason, you had done a story with him before. This guy has a resume that just it, it makes you feel like you're the most unaccomplished person in the world when you look at this guy's resume. Uh, and he's not a whole lot older uh, than we are, Jason. And so uh, we, we got him on the line and uh, talked to him about this. And you guys were like uh, old buddies reuniting. Chris, it's good to see you again, man. Um, let's just start things off with this this news that came out that Russia uh, is or might be withdrawing from the space station. This seemed like the last thread of, of uh, uh, you know, what do you call it? Binational uh you know, cooperation that we had with Russia. How, how likely do you think it is that, that the leader of uh, the, the Russian space program is actually going to pull out? Well, first of all, great to be with you again. And, and uh, it was just a blink of an eye several years ago where we were touring around the space center together. And, and uh, so nice to connect on a personal level one more time. So to answer your question, I, I can't speak for, you know, certainly his, his motivations, uh, uh, Rogozin is a gentleman we're talking about, the head of the Russian Space Agency. Um, I can just tell you what the impacts would be and how I how I could, how I would uh, see that happening, both from a technical point of view and like an international cooperation point of view. It's a whole it's a it's a deep conversation. So stop me at any point if you want to drill down. But uh, at the high level, the International Space Station is five partner agencies. NASA and Russia make up two of them, but Japan, Canada, and the European Space Agency, which is about 15 or 16 member nations, um, all comprise the space station program. So it's not simply a U.S.-Russia dynamic there. There's a lot more to it, and, um, and it would be interesting to see how that all unfolds uh, you know, with, with the multinational aspect of it. I think it would be pretty clearly... The U.S. With, with the other partners and, and the Russians going their separate ways. So they'd almost um, be shooting themselves in the foot if they did end up pulling out of this and further isolating themselves here on Earth. Um, and is this one of those things, Chris? I mean, you know, a lot of people have called this a hollow threat or not really a threat. You know, he basically came out and stated that, hey, you know, we could do this and we would give our year's notice that we're going to pull out and they haven't given that year's notice. So it's almost like, Okay, are you saying something or are you not saying something here? Could the other partners just say, well, fine, we'll figure out a way to do it without you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, in my mind, it's a little bit of a veiled threat, you know, like, okay, separate and see where where you'll be. Um, there, there's a great deal of interdependence amongst all the countries on the space station. Um, the, the back half of the station is is Russian provided and Russian equipment. And when you float through that, there's a hatch right in the middle uh, that we always leave open. But when you float through there, you can tell that the equipment is designed um, by a different manufacturer. It's just a different feel and smell. And, 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 and then the forward half of the space station is uh, the U.S. and the other uh, three 
partner agencies provided, you know, the Europeans have a module, the Japanese have a module, each of those have quite a robust capability. But the, the key thing is really shared, shared services. You know, when you have a power outage here on earth, it's a big deal, right? So when you share power, of, of, you know, borrow your buddy's generator or whatever. And the space station, the U.S. solar arrays are providing the power for the whole thing. And the power is passed through to the Russian side. And then the Russians, in turn, they have um, the ability to maneuver the orbital maneuvering engines, to fire the orbital maneuvering engines. So, so there's a little bit of interdependency there that if, if we did separate or go our separate ways, they'd have to figure out the power and we would have to figure out um, the propulsion because even though the space station uh, effectively is, uh, has, has no air resistance, there's a little teeny bit of atmospheric drag that happens that causes the space station to lose altitude over the course of a month or two, and then we reboost, usually about a month, and then we reboost back to uh, about 250, 300 miles of altitude, and it'll, it'll sink back down to 250, 225 miles, and then we boost it back up. So we need those engines to do that. There's uh, necessity um, is the mother of invention, right? So I, yeah. I don't believe that either either country would be would be without a way to figure it out. I think we'd just be able to. That would be that would be solved in quick order. Yeah, because he's kind of uh, suggested that they know, could just kind of remove those uh, Soyuz engines and just let this thing crash and sort of point it out that it doesn't really go over Russia as much as it does the other member countries. So if it crashes, well, that could be a, a big problem for you. What you're saying here, here is if they did decide to pull those out, that the rest of the countries would figure out a way to put some engines up there that could do the job. Yeah, especially with the year's notice. I mean, there there would be somebody that would manufacture something that, that a module that could give us that capability. Um, and let me just point out too that if you have, I mean, just think about your own house. You know, if you've got a, a machine of bolts that have been connected in your engine of your car forever and ever and ever, it's not trivial to separate those bolts and pull the pieces apart. You know, you've got the space station connected by this this center docking. Uh, module undoing those bolts separating station there's there uh, there's bound to be technical issues and um and then just how do you do that how do they not how do the components not hit each other there's a great deal of coordination that would have to happen it, it's it's nowhere near like hey next wednesday we're gonna drive the bolts and separate this thing by far it's not that simple chris would 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 they literally you know, separate the modules or would they just close the hatch if Russia decided to go its own way? You really can't just close the hatch. Um, it's like, just take, for example, orbital debris. Periodically, we have to maneuver the space station to avoid orbital orbital debris. That in and of itself is a joint effort. And if the space station is still physically connected and the hatch is closed, you've got you know, how do you work through that? If it's just, it, as long as you're physically connected, it's one space station. And uh, just like if, when a SpaceX vehicle comes up and docks to the station, while it's free floating from, from launch to docking, the mission, the SpaceX mission control is in charge. As soon as it docks to the space station, the space station mission control in Houston, I mean, is, yeah, the NASA space mission control is, is in charge. And then up until the point when SpaceX undocks and then their, their company takes over the control of their own vehicle. So when you're docked and mated, 
you are one spaceship. Uh, so just closing the hatch doesn't get you anywhere. Chris, you've served as a, hmm. a commander uh, on the International Space Station. Uh, you've also you're also a retired U.S. Navy SEAL, uh, decorated, uh, served in combat, and uh, have seen a lot here uh, on this planet. You bring kind of a unique perspective, I think, just because you have seen, uh, you know, the worst of people not getting along here on Earth. You've been in war, uh, and then you've also been to this outpost in space, which is supposed to be free of all of this, and usually is. How sad is it for you to see those two worlds sort of cross here with with a threat being made like this? And usually there was cooperation in at least one place, and that was up there. Well, on a personal level, it's very sad. You know, I I, I had been an astronaut for almost 18 years, 17 and a half years or so. And much of that time I spent back and forth um, training in it's called star city which is the base outside of moscow where the, where the russians uh, train their cosmonauts and we as astronauts go there all the time and the cosmonauts come to houston and train and we eat dinner together and i know their families and i know their children and uh and vice versa and so there's there's long there's decades long friendships there on the astronaut cosmonaut side and in and with the trainers and the language instructors and uh, the list goes on where I've had a lot of meals and a lot of social events and a lot of hard simulations and things that bond you as, as human beings. And, and, um, and our, the NASA staff that's, that works over in star city are largely Russian citizens who are employed by NASA or, or contract companies, uh, so on, on that personal level, it's disappointing to see this tension between our countries. And um, uh, I haven't yet had the opportunity to talk to those friends since all this happened. So at some point, when well, that would be a nice uh, thing to, to do, you know, nice, I, I, in nice in quotes, you know, it would be, it would be interesting. Um, and then on the professional side, it just is the space station has been such a beacon of cooperation for so many years. And to see that sort of kind of eroding before our very eyes because of uh, some, you know, decisions of a few is very disappointing. And for people who don't know who the uh, head of the Russian space program is, Rogozin, who you were talking about. Um, he, he is a political appointee and uh, he was Russia's deputy prime minister. I, I, I don't know enough about him, but I hear based on, you know, reading from space.com and Bloomberg and other articles that have reported on this, that he is often filled with bluster. When he makes a statement like this, that the decision has already been made, we can't talk about it publicly, Chris. Is this more bluster or is this something do you think NASA is actually preparing for right now in Houston? Well, you have to you have to prepare, right? If you if you if you take no action at all to what you think is sort of not serious, if it comes to fruition and you're standing there naked, it's a little bit bad on you, right? So there's definitely preparation that's happening. I think all of us in the space community, and and um, I'm I'm a little bit removed from that about nine months or so now, so my intelligence is slightly stale. Um, but we all know that he is known to say a lot of things and, and uh, post a lot of things on social media. And some of those are, are nowhere near ever going to come true. And, and some he actually does. Uh, 
So I think more often than not, it's 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 sort of just rhetoric. Uh, but I, I think that uh, the NASA leadership must prepare for what could be an eventual separation. Well, what, what do you think NASA would be doing right now? Is it on the phone with the European Space Agency, with Japan, with, with others to try to figure out uh, Plan B and propulsion for the system for, for the station yeah. if they uh, have to go it alone? Exactly. There, there's technical things that need to be solved. And the head of the International Space Station program is an American gentleman who who lives in offices in 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 his headquarters at the Johnson Space Center in Houston. And um, there there are weekly meetings with all the partner key leaders that that take place. And I'm sure some of those agenda items are, hey, let's let's uh, prepare for the technical things that need to happen and, and sort of have what I really enjoyed about NASA working there is it made me think about the the next thing that could happen if you're you know prepare for the next worst failure is what we always said. So I know knowing those people individually uh and the way that as a culture we think there, having sort of written down plans for okay, if this then this, if this then this, I think that's that that sort of war gaming. It's a bad, bad analogy. Bad I get it. Though. Yeah. That, that, that contingency planning is is uh, is going on right now. I'm sure. This, by the way, is the the same uh, leader there in Russia who uh, just you know days ago suggested that. Uh, you know, was talking about nuclear war uh, and suggested that Russia could destroy NATO countries, all the NATO countries in about half an hour. So that gives you uh, a little bit of color for for, you know, who we're talking about here. What he's doing here, Chris, is he's railing on these sanctions that Western countries have been you know, have put in place because of Russia's unprovoked uh, invasion of Ukraine uh, that continues right now. Uh, he made similar statements the last time around when Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, back in 2014 and basically suggested at the time, you know, the U.S. was reliant on Russia to get its astronauts up to the space station after we, we had retired the shuttle. Uh, and he basically suggested that, you know, you might want to use a trampoline to get your astronauts there. Um, as you said, necessity is the mother of invention. Since 2014, quite a bit of invention has happened. Talk about how big of a deal uh, it is that we've had private companies coming in, like the Blue Origins of the world and the SpaceX of the world, uh, and filling a lot of that need here in the U.S. And a lot of that work is happening right here in Texas. Yeah, exactly. Um, I had the good fortune of being on the space station in the summer of 2000 when um, the first manned uh, launch of the SpaceX Dragon happened. They've been flying unmanned cargo dragons for a number of years bringing supplies to us but my friends bob bankin and doug early were the test pilots and they arrived spent two months with me on board the station and dragon returned to earth and it performed flawlessly from uh, beginning to end of every phase of the mission and since then uh we just we just launched the fourth crew of, of on, on a spacex dragon that gives us as a country and with our other partner um, agency, Japan, Canada, and the European Union, European Space Agency, it gives us the capability to completely be decoupled from launch services uh, with, with the Russians. I will tell you this, um, NASA deliberately, intentionally had plans to have astronauts continue one or two per year to fly on a Russian Soyuz. 
And that is sort of was an insurance plan. So let's just say something happens with SpaceX. They have a technical issue that grounds them for a number of months or, or, or a launch cycle or two. If we had the ability to uh, to launch people on the Russian Soyuz still, then we wouldn't have a, a period of time where we'd have a gap um, a gap of a U.S. astronaut on, on board the station. So, but I, I believe that that, given the 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 uh, the politics of it now, I, I, I think all of those astronauts, and I say I think because I don't know for sure, I think those U.S. astronauts that were training on for Soyuz launches in the coming year or two um, have all shifted to SpaceX missions. So we have our own ability to get there. We don't need to rely on the Russians. We were relying on the Russians from 2011 till 2020, and uh, whenever there's a monopoly. The price is completely controlled by the uh, by the monopoly group, and and that was the case with us with the Russians. We just paid dearly. Yeah, and that's a good point, them. Chris. For people who might not realize it, we actually the United States taxpayers actually paid money to put astronauts in, inside the Soyuz capsule to to send it. You, 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 you absolutely are. Um, as Jason mentioned, and as you guys were talking about, we do have our own vehicle now, SpaceX, at least. Uh, transporting uh, astronauts up there. But the Johnson Space Center in Houston is also home to the control center for the space station, which is a separate control room from the old shuttle control room uh, as well. But if, if let's say that, that, you know, the situation with Russia continues to deteriorate, if the separation happens, how big of an impact is that in Houston? I, I mean, when I lived down there for eight years, there, there you know, all around the JSC are all these contractors. Is it does it turn to a flurry of activity if they have to figure out how to you know decouple the Russian module and figure out propulsion on their own? Does it does a space economy pick up in Texas? I guess is the question. You know, that's a good question, but I don't really see that it necessarily would have to pick up. That there we have the ability to operate and maintain and run and uh, and the space station right now. If you added a small capability to uh, for propulsion or anything else we think we might need, it might add a, a, additional duties to some one of the console positions in mission control, but that would um, would not be significant workload. I, I don't think you know we 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 we're managed to do that right now. It sounds like it's. Um it's pretty easy to say, you know, don't let the hatch hit you on the way out. Then you can go ahead and decouple and, and go your way. But uh, at the same time, Chris, I, I, I know that you probably see this you know, deeper issue of cooperation. And how important is it that this survives? How important do you think it is? I mean, it sounds like unreliable partners at this point, but I guess we have to remember we're talking about a handful of people in a huge space agency over in Russia, probably the, the majority of which would like to see this continue. I think you're absolutely right. And, and you mentioned it at some point in this talk that uh, we're ghostly appointed individual, which means that somebody else could be appointed in his role. And in my time as, as a NASA astronaut, I've, I've seen several uh, NASA administrators and I've seen several mm. uh, heads of Roscosmos. And, and just like uh, a leader in any organization, whether it be a school principal or the manager of Home Depot or the president of the Russian Space Agency, that person's leadership affects the culture and the dynamics of the whole organization. So if you change him, it could be a completely different uh, environment in in the near future. Yeah, I don't want to get into Putin's head because who knows what's happening there. But strategically, 
Russia really needs this international cooperation, you know, worst case to at least keep an eye on us, doesn't it? Well, I think the bigger issue for them is financial. They, uh, they need the, uh, in, in the space program, that's where my expertise is, yeah. that's what I'm talking about. They, they need the financial support that comes from us paying, the uh, United States, Japan, Canada, Europeans, paying them for launch services, paying them for, for training in the Soyuz. That money keeps their, their organization afloat. You know, I don't know how long they would last if they were completely independent on, on their own, um, their own budget. Hmm. So it almost sounds like, um, and I, you know, I don't mean to draw lines like this, but it almost sounds like they need us more than we need them. I, I believe that's true. Uh, but that's just my opinion. So for people who aren't space nerds like myself, um, space.com is a, uh, is, well, I, I think it's a good place to go. Chris, I know you live this. Is, do astronauts ever go to space.com for journalism on space? Well, as a matter of fact, right now, I no, I no longer um, have the, the good fortune of having the up-to-date, most current <laughs> news from just walking around the hallways. So I, I get news from space.com just like you. Right. That's humbling well, to know that you, you're looking to get up just like we are. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. But one thing that... I have, I have, I have a few phone numbers of friends that I can call and say, Hey, is this, true? let's, let's uh, get them on the line here. Let's get them on the line. <laughs> yeah. um, hey, one thing that, that uh, space.com was uh, reported the other day, just, I think two days ago, uh, they were talking about Russia uh, is talking about creating its own space station uh, for, uh, for deployment in the 2030s or so next 10, 15 years or so. <laughs> Have you heard that? Number one, number two, is that is that really likely? I don't see it as likely. They just launched a, a component on the space station called MLM, launched last year, and that thing was I don't know exactly how long, but somewhere in the neighborhood of eight years uh, in discussion of when it was. I have, you'd have to check my my dates, but a really really long time. In fact, on my first long duration mission in 2013, it was a topic of discussion. Hey, do, and we even learned, we even got trained on some of the, the aspects of MLM. So my point is, it took that long to make one module and launch one module on an already existing space station. Twenty thirty is a long ways away. Certainly they could do it, but I think they were, again, it's all about finances. I think they were running yeah. out of money and wouldn't be able to put it together. Especially when you've been cut off from so much uh, of your your income around the world because of sanctions, and and yeah, I saw that same article. It's one thing to come up with a a beautiful blueprint that you've drawn up and 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 put on a website. It's another thing to actually build it and get it up there. Uh, Chris, it does beg the question, though. You know, and NASA wants to keep the International Space Station going through uh, 2030. Uh, you know, with or without Russia's help here. Um, how much do we need to be pushing uh, for the replacement, especially when you start thinking about partners uh, like Russia, who might not be the most um, dependable partners? How much do we need to be thinking about and constructing and getting up there somewhere with uh, a replacement of our own? Well, we've we've got things in work as a country. We, we do. You know, that there's a, uh, a desire. to The long term desire is go to Mars. And uh, in the interim, there's a design for the Lunar Gateway, which is a space station-like vehicle that would be in lunar orbit and with a, um, a reusable 
land lunar lander. So crews could go, you know, take go down to the surface of the moon for some period of time and come back up. That is already in the works. It's already being designed. Again, it is a funding issue, so I don't know exactly the time frame of when it will, will it will be. Um, I think in an ideal world, as as you hand over the reins of the space station to a commercial company, that's that's really the, the objective, not to just deorbit as soon as the government's done with the space station, but hopefully the commercial world will be ready to to have a business case for use of the space station. And I, I believe that that's true. There are several companies that have great, fantastic plans for that. Uh, and and then NASA's focus thing can shift on to the, the longer term, more expensive, beyond lower Earth orbit missions that that will, I think will truly continue to inspire uh, people in our country. Let me let me take that bait there, Chris. Uh, when we came down to see you a few years ago at Building 9 at the, at the Johnson Space Center, we also talked to uh, some of your colleagues about the uh, the Mars mission, which is farther down the road. But it, I've been trying to keep up with that on the side, and it seems like that is still mired in problems and costing more money all the time. I, is that going to get off the ground? Do you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, the joke is the joke is Mars is always fifteen years away, right? Like it. it and and the truth of that joke is that as soon as you decide and as a nas- the national will is there and the, the desire to fund it at the levels that you need to, um, easily, in my opinion, easily achievable in 15 years, especially now that there's sort of com- competition in the market and you know, you've got a couple different companies that, that will push each other. I don't know about you, if you just go run on a treadmill by yourself, it's not the same workout as if you go run with a buddy who's pushing you. And next thing you know, you're working way harder than you thought you were going to do on your little run. Um, and that's just the nature of competition. So, so I think that we could do it as soon as we decide as a nation it's time. Uh, I, I also think that um, it's tough. It'll be tough for a solely commercial mission to Mars. You know, I don't want to say it's not doable because who, if you bet against Elon, you're probably going to lose. But I, I think that it's so expensive and so costly that it's more of a government mission and maybe even a combination of governments that will be successful in the Mars hmm. exploration, at least initially. Yeah, we talk about that combination of governments, and, and that sort of brings us back to, you know, the whole reason for this podcast, and that is the the threat from the head of the Russian space agency that, you know, they could pull out of the International Space Station, which would be uh, significant, but not, um, you know, an insurmountable problem for the rest of the countries involved there. I'm curious, Chris, because you've spent, you know, all told, you've been up there so many times, you've spent more than a year combined uh, in space. Uh, not many people can say that. Um, you've you've been around these people from other countries, specifically from Russia. How much do... the how much do y'all talk about what's going on on earth? How much does that come up? You know, just when you're sitting around shooting the breeze. That's a great question. And ultimately it boils down to the individual relationship between those astronauts and cosmonauts. For example, on my mission in 2013, I launched with two cosmonauts in a Soyuz. One gentleman, Pavel Vinogradov, he was a generation older than both myself and my, and my other cosmonaut crewmate, Sasha Masurkin. Pavel grew up in the Soviet Union. He had, and, and, and Sasha grew up as a Russian citizen. It was interesting for me to watch those, those two react differently to the same 
um, set of, of circumstances, both in a professional setting and personal setting, interacting with the media, whatever. And um, uh, I had a, because probably closer in age, I had a tighter bond with the younger guy. We were about the same age. And I had no problem asking him pointed questions about his country. Tell me why this, what do you, what's the meaning here? Is there, uh, do you trust these, this, what's being said on this instance? And he, the same, this mission in 2020, uh, for a number of factors, one of which was our, our crew came together rather late in the process. The guys that I had been training with, one of them had a medical issue and had to get removed late in the flight. So I, I joined up with a different set of, of guys and their personalities were different. We just talked about sports. We talked about how weird COVID was. We talked about the impacts of COVID, but we didn't talk about politics uh, and that's just because our relationship was different. So, and I imagine every crew is is different. Have the levels of proficiency in English and Russian between the the dynamics of the crew. All of that affects affects the nature of those conversations. But in general, we're just people up there trying to sort through what things mean in other cultures. That's, that's a good point, Chris. Before we let you go. Um... I do want to ask you about the Medal of Honor Museum, the, the National Medal of Honor Museum, which you are now the president and CEO of after your life at NASA. Um, this is opening next year. Give us an idea of what all it's going to be, because I've heard about this in Arlington, Texas, but I don't know enough about what all it's going to recognize. Yeah, we we just broke ground last month. So if you drive by um, Arlington, it's, it's right in the entertainment district there by the Cowboys Stadium, ATT Stadium and the two baseball, the old and the new baseball park and, and Six Flags and Texas Live. It's right in that, that area. You'll see construction happening. It's two years away, so it's the fall of 2024 when we'll open. It'll be a museum of biographical stories of amazing courage, valor, sacrifice. These Medal of Honor recipients and their stories are just unbelievable. And, and the our true aim is to inspire people just to be better versions of themselves. None of us are going to have the opportunity. Most of us are not going to have the opportunity to be on a battlefield and, and demonstrate courage in, in the criteria that's needed to earn the Medal of Honor. Um, but we all can have courage in different aspects of our life. Like maybe it's a hard conversation with a teenage kid or, you know, uh, do you move your family for a new job or not? You know, it, it just, there's different aspects of our life and one, you might have courage in one and, and be a little timid in another. I know that's the case for me. Um, but this museum will be stories that we hope will inspire people to do just that. In the same building, we'll have a leadership institute that that um, will have programmatic content, both for, for young people uh, in terms of character development and for adults in terms of leadership and professional education and that sort of thing. And we hope we look forward to, to bringing the values of, of the medal to the people of the country. I, I think this is going to be an awesome yeah. uh, project and, and what a location for it too, Chris. Uh, I mean, wow. Uh, to go from being a, a U.S. Navy SEAL, again, as I said, uh, highly decorated there to, you know, uh, on the shuttle and space station astronaut uh and then you retired and you might be busier than ever we were, we were joking about that beforehand I, you're, I you're going in the wrong direction but for all the right reasons yeah uh, awesome it, yeah, go I, ahead chris i find it easier i find it easier to uh, do spacewalks than it is to build large buildings <laughs> funny how that works isn't it 
<laughs> it must be the effect of gravity. <laughs> hey, man, thanks so much for the time, Chris. Good to see you again, and I uh, can't wait for the uh, museum to open in 2024. We'll be out there to see it. Likewise, gentlemen. Great to be with you. Chris, thank you.